Welcome to episode 3 of the Creative Mornings Sheffield podcast. Creative Mornings is a breakfast lecture series for the creative community. Every month, in cities all over the world, the creative and curious come together to drink coffee, eat more pastry than anyone thought possible, and hear a talk by someone wonderful. Creative Mornings Sheffield is the Sheffield chapter, organised by Penny Lee. Each event is documented through pictures, video, and this very podcast. I'm Ian Broom, and this episode features Patrick Walker from Dust Collective and Laura Hyam from FAI Farms. Patrick and Laura talk about how they've been collaborating to raise awareness and create real change for sustainable food production. Perhaps the key takeaway, as they say, is how important it is to join things up, work together, and do things differently. And there are some great tips on how we, as consumers, can help improve the current food production situation. You're about to hear Patrick and Laura's talk in full, but first, some sponsor messages. This Creative Morning Sheffield talk was sponsored by La Biblioteca, a periodical shop, studio and project space on Pinston Street. Partners include Make It Matte Black for video work and yours truly at verymeta.com. Go to creativemornings.com slash sponsor if you'd like to sponsor a future talk. Creative Mornings is supported globally by MailChimp, Shutterstock and Wix. If you want to listen to the Creative Mornings global podcast, head to creativemornings.com slash podcast. Um, can everybody hear me okay? Yeah, that's a nod. Um, so, Laura, uh, Patrick, uh, we're going to present a little bit about ourselves individually and then just tell you a bit about the work that we're doing together. Um, so, Dust, I don't know who knows us or who doesn't know us. Thanks to Matt for providing the theme for today's talk. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about it in, the, in, it in a second. Um, so we started in 2000, uh, 17 years ago, in Sheffield. Um, that's a lot of work that's been done uh, over that period of time. We were quite an interesting studio in that we are educators and students, and most of the people that work in Dust have either taught the other people in Dust or they've been students of people in Dust. So it's kind of a, it's quite a, an odd mix-up. We call ourselves a collective because of the way we work. We don't focus on roles, we focus on, we focus on individuals and what they do and how they do those things. Um, and we've, for the last maybe 10, 15 years, we've been trying to put in place the kind of working environment that would allow for the growth of a particular way of working. So we studied uh, in Leeds Met in a print, print room. Uh, we were doing book arts and typography and things like that. As soon as we left, we recognised that we, that was going to be lost to us forever. We were going to be stuck in front of an Apple Mac, and um, that, that would be the life forever, really. So we were very um, keen on breaking that, and we set up print rooms, and we set up dark rooms, and we, we essentially kind of maintained a way of working that would allow us to keep our hands dirty, uh, our heads kind of moving, and the way that we think about the world uh, quite open. Um, I'm going to show you some work quite quickly. There's a lot of work. Um, I, can't say, I can't speak about particular pieces. I just want to show you 
the kind of tone and the kind of uh, activities that we get up to. Um, if you want to come and talk about any of those pieces of work or if you want to find out more about what we do, there's, there's quite a few of us here. Um, uh, I'll ask you to stand up, please. I'm not going to be the only one that gets embarrassed. Come on, please. Every time I have to do this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so uh, please feel free to uh, have a word with these people or come and visit the studio. It's up to you. Um, so, food has always been a theme. We're designers, we're illustrators, we're uh, brand strategists, we're thinkers. Um, we do lots of arts and culture work. That arts and culture work is also very focused on, on food. Um, beyond where we are now, right back in history, it was something, you know, the, the kind of notions of what challenge does with the environment, what challenge does with the way that we currently live, were some with the themes that were kind of running very kind of strongly through how we thought and the work we did. Um, so... Publications. I don't know if you've come across this, but uh, Archive Sheffield was a publication that's particular, uh, particularly relevant to some of today's conversation. This was a free publication that we, wor we worked on with a number of photographers, uh, and it was really just about documenting everyday life and the things that make life interesting. Branding work, things like uh, arts events in the city. Um, we do still do a lot of print, uh, a lot of print uh, traditional printmaking techniques such as letterpress, screen printing. Again, the food stuff, illustration, dark room activities, books, uh, journals, arts journals, Corridor 8. This is something that we work working with a, a guy called Michael Butterworth in, um, in Manchester. Lots of arts and crafts activities, um, and down to things like brands such as Royal Mail, um, lots of um, very well kind of known international brands that we work with. Uh, this, this particular piece of work, uh, Evo, was a bit of a tipping point for us, so we were asked, we were invited to launch a brand at the uh, Green Festival in San Francisco, which was the sort of biggest, the world's biggest sustainability uh, and environmental kind of event. And it was really the first time that we'd engaged with it in a, in a kind of meaningful manner. And I think at that point in time, we started to get a little bit dissatisfied with what we thought design could be. Um, I think we'd, we'd, we'd felt like we'd got to a point that we were getting some level of recognition for what we were doing aesthetically, but we weren't really kind of satisfying ourselves in terms of what we were doing, uh, how design was changing things, or how design could do something more than just look pretty. Um, which, which led, led to, uh, so what is, uh, what is design here to do? Led to a pretty interesting conversation for me personally. So Alan, myself and Alan, who sat at the back there, we were once in a car park somewhere, maybe five or six years ago, and we, even though things were going all right, we recognised that dust was destined to be a bit more than that. We want, personally and individually, we wanted it to be more than that. Um, and we had this conversation that when, if we don't get dust to become something else in the next year, we're, going to just, we're just going to shut it down and we're going to stop doing that and go off and do something different. And to the point of serendipity, this is a, it's just one of those things, these things happen. We were approached by um, a business called Benchmark to do some work. Um, fine, yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah. Nobody's getting out now. <laughs> so. 
So, so literally within that year, um, we were approached by an organisation called Benchmark, and they were very much involved with um, working alongside uh, the global food supply chain, and they'd got, they'd got a framework they were talking about, which was based around this thing called Three E's, um, and Laura's going to speak a little bit more about this, but essentially it was, it was a framework of environment, uh, ethics, and economics. And what was happening was that this framework was being picked up by some very big organisations and being used in their CSR reporting, so corporate social responsibility, their sustainability reporting. And they came to us and said, we don't want to lose, we don't want to lose it, because it's, it's, we're in danger here of the thing that we've created, um, just kind of leaving the room and us never getting it back again. So they asked us to brand up um, and create an identity for that, which we did, and this was the mark that came out of that. And that was the start of a, a, a very interesting relationship for us. So we, we went in there as designers, um, and then something kind of, you know, I never saw this coming. We were a small studio, not particularly profitable. We were doing all right. Um, but um, what happened was we were invited to become part of that organisation. So at the time when we joined, there was maybe 60, 70 people. Now, and in about maybe four or five countries, um, now there's about 800 and odd people in 27 countries. So we joined um, with Benchmark as Dust, still operating in exactly the same way, still doing all our arts and culture activity, but more now more engaged with some uh, subject matter that we um, that we'd never come across before, but we were massively interested in. We knew it was important. So I'm here talking as uh, Dust from Benchmark Sustainability Science uh, Division, as is, uh, as is Laura. Um, and what happened was that all of a sudden, everything that we were doing before, which was about you know, beautifying or about communicating and presenting, it took a bit of a head turn. So all of a sudden, we, the, the, kind of, the, sort of the reality of the subject matter uh, and that as designers that we kind of faced with just got... In, you know, immeasurably just much more kind of complex and uh, heavy, you know, in terms of dealing with it and how we work with that. I'm just, I'm just using this as an example. So this is, um, this is a production in a year of, um, of five sources of protein. You know, we, we've not included everything in it. Obviously, there's, you know, there's all the vegetables and everything else that we, as a, as a race, a human race, kind of produce. But I'm starting off with here with these big numbers, so... Obviously, you can see that there's a lot of things here, um, and this is what's that's kind of what's happening the world over, which is fine. You know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of people to feed, and I, you know, when I when I look at these numbers, I'm, I'm kind of I'm all, kind of all right with it. I, I get a little bit overwhelmed with the fact that there's that much life, and there's that there's that much um, kind of care required to do that properly, but then. When I stick the word tons at the end of it, I start to think about it a bit more differently. And um, you know, that's when, it, that's when it really starts to sort it home. So okay, let's, let's, let's choose in kind of one of these, 113 million tons of pig. Um, so I've got to do some maths here, sorry. So 113 billion kilograms of pig. Um, I'll come back to the word billion in a bit because it's, it's a funny word for me. A pig. When it goes to slaughter, it's 85 kilograms. That is exactly the same weight as me. So if you need to visualise, just look at me, please. Um, so the, the, 
you've got this kind of, we can very easily sort of say, do a straight division. And then I'm left with this number. So 1,353,293,413 pigs. Now the billion word is the, is the word that really just freaked me out because as soon as I hear a billion, I stop thinking about it. I cannot imagine what, a billion light years. What's the point? You know, it's kind of like, it's something that's so big and so kind of abstract that I can't, I can't put it in anything, any kind of measurable uh, set of circumstances. And when you look at that, each pig has got its own kind of cost, its own set of consequences. So carbon emissions, land use, nutrient loading, pollution, waste, biodiversity loss, energy use, water use, livelihoods, communities. And we can't lose sight of the people that are involved in this. You know, there is, there is the impacts and challenges are faced absolutely everywhere. And this kind of notion of a community, you know, this kind of notion of a town, this kind of notion of a, a body of people that are reliant on farming. Worker well-being, animal welfare, antimicrobial use, you know, that's a big one at the moment for anybody who's, you know, who's, who's, doesn't know much about it, it's definitely worth looking into. So back to our numbers, again, you know, we've got, we've got 113, that game is that big on pig. Now, now for example, a chicken's not far off that, but a chicken doesn't weigh 85 kilograms. So if we thought about what a chicken weighs and then looked at that figure, that would be absolutely huge. This is where we are. And we know that there's this kind of notion of we're moving towards the future of food. You know, what is the future of food for us? We asked this question on mess on the back, and some of the answers that we got back were, are we leaning towards a plant-forward uh, forward food feature? Food trends will continue to come and go. The donut will die. The avocado will become basic. Um, we need to talk about seaweed. And somebody mentioned to me earlier on about insects. Yeah, insects are very much in the conversation at the moment. So whatever the future of food looks like, we are still here. And this is the body of work that I uh, am absolutely passionate about, I know Laura is as well, is that whilst we're where we are, we need people to look after that. We need people to concentrate on that big list that I showed before of all the things that need uh, that, that challenges, that need uh, solving and need dealing with. And whilst we get to the future of food, there is this transition. I think things can be done better. Uh, you know, I, I strongly believe that there are, there are aspects to how we operate that uh, you know, are completely inadequate, and I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you do. But that is, they're supported by the fact that there are people and there are human beings and there are mechanisms in place that make it very difficult to change. Um, Laura, you know, the enduring link between people, animals, and our shared environment is the basic concept known as One Health. What affects one affects us all. That is ne has never been more true than it currently is. This is where, where Dust met Laura. So this is where we met FAI, this is where, where we met Laura, and I'm going to now hand over to yourself. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Hello, everybody. My name's Laura. I'm a veterinary surgeon from Sheffield, actually, originally, so it's really nice to be here. Um, but I'm also a consultant at FAI Farms, and that stands for the Food Animal Initiative. And we're based, as I say, out in Oxford. The story of FAI is quite interesting as well, as the story of Dust is. And we started out in, in 2000, um, we had three founding directors that are still with us today. And at that time, they 
saw um, a, a pressing and urgent need for greater attention really to be paid to the way in which our food is produced and certainly felt as well that greater transparency was required for consumers to be able to um, be aware, more aware of, of how the food on their plate was, was being produced at farm level. And so FAI came to fruition. And at that time we were pretty small, we had just two commercial clients at that time um, and we were just based on our own farm in Oxford, farming as well, so we, we had our wellies firmly in the, in the dirt as well, which meant that we had that credibility with the farming community as well as being able to advise our clients from a place of a real practical um, farming reality. Um, but since then, the business has grown really beyond measure. We, we became benchmark quite quickly after that, um, after FAI was established. Um, and since then, as, as Pat says, we, we're now a company with nearly a thousand employees across the world um, in different divisions, making impacts in sustainability in lots of different sectors, from publishing through to animal health, through to nutrition, uh, breeding and genetics, and in sustainability science. So it's really great to be part of this business that's a very exciting, exciting place to be. Um, but what we do is, as well as farming, our own pigs and cattle, um, sheep and laying hens, we also provide services to um, a large portfolio of some of the biggest um, food brands in the world. And what we do for those clients is, is we provide strategic and policy advice on the way in which those brands source livestock products. We also perform and manage R&D pro pro uh, projects within their supply chains. So in real terms, that means that me and my colleagues find ourselves out on farm on a regular basis, collecting data, uh, looking at animal welfare, environmental stewardship, um, as well as pr productivity indicators on farm. Um, and, and those farmers are obviously producing the food that supplies um, some of these um, biggest food brands in the world. And finally, we also... Um, provide data, um, data services for our clients, so we build cloud-based data solutions um, that enable us to collect sustainability indicators uh, from these farms and allow trending and feedback to those brands about how we're performing in, in the supply chain. We've got lots of pictures of our own animals. <laughs> and for us, what we're doing in this space is, is not just saying that Organic farming is, is the best. You've got, to, you've got to eat local, you've got to, you've got to eat organic, you've got to spend a large proportion of your paycheck every month on, on the food you, you eat. But what we're saying is that actually organic and local is, is fantastic. It's, a, it's a, almost a gold standard. But the majority of our population just can't afford it. Um, and that means what we're trying to do is raise, raise the benchmark of the majority of the food that's on supermarket shelves. And, and so in raising that benchmark, we're impacting on the lives of of, of literally millions of animals, as well as thousands and thousands of people that depend on these animals for their livelihood. And what we also do is, is not only work in the UK and, and Europe, which is obviously where most of our work sits, um, but we also ex are expanding our work into sort of lower income settings as well, which is an area of, of great interest, um, particularly to myself. Um, but for what we're doing is, is performing a range of admittedly smaller projects, but in, in parts of the world such as Sub-Saharan Africa, in Kenya, um, and uh, in, in other parts of the world, India and Nepal as well. And what I suppose we're doing by running those projects is saying that, that, um, that, that yes, the, the commercial world is, is really important to be able to pull through impact through massive supply chains. Um, and what we're also saying is that, yes, 
livestock do have negative impacts on, on certainly on the environment, um, sometimes on human health as well, and, and certainly in terms of animal welfare. But what, what, we're, what we're recognising is that some parts of the world simply depend on livestock for their entire um, livelihoods. Um, also for nutrition, for fertiliser, for fuel, for clothing, and also for cultural, socio-cultural identity as well. As well. So what we're saying is that, that, yes, we know in the Western world we do have to reduce our consumption of livestock products, but some parts of the world, we can't get away from it. We actually need to increase our, our, uh, our production of livestock and do it much better in those parts of the world because we're propping up people's lives and, and communities as well. So, as Pat says, everything we do is underpinned by this three E's framework, and I think that's something that, if you can take that away from today, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. It's a simple concept. Everything we do has to consider economic viability of farming communities. It has to consider the environmental stewardship responsibility that farmers have for, for looking after the land. And it also has to consider ethics, which for us includes both animal welfare and worker welfare, as well as the socio-cultural dimensions of livestock production. And so you'll find that a lot of sustainability definitions don't actually include animal welfare. They don't really include animals. Um, but with our threes framework, we've definitely taken into consideration animal welfare. And a really fantastic example that we always roll out for these things is our, is our sort of flagship project, I suppose, at FAI. Um, and about 10 years ago now, we partnered with, with DEFRA, with Oxford University, and one of our biggest commercial clients at the time. And we looked at free-range egg production. And back then, about 10 years ago, free-range egg production would look like um, a patch of land, uh, fairly barren, actually, with a shed on it, with plenty of potholes for the birds to, to get out and explore their environment. But what we found in practice is that many of those birds don't actually feel confident enough to explore their environment. They don't use those potholes, and you find that only a certain, certain birds will use the full range um, to their full ability. And so what we thought is we've got to look at a way of actually better utilising this system and improving um, this system for birds as well as potentially the environment. And actually, if you look at the, the domestic uh, laying hen, you'll find that its ancestors are actually jungle fowl. So they, they, they're obviously um, sort of used to uh, tree-based uh, tree environments. So what we did is we ran a, a randomised control trial on the FAI farm in Oxford to compare the pr production as well as the welfare of chickens, um, both in um, planted up plots as well as unplanted plots. And the, the, the results were, were pretty, uh, pretty staggering, really. We, showed, we found that, statistically, the birds that had access to trees on the range had lower mortality as well as produce better quality eggs, quite simply. So we've found a statistical difference in the number of, of egg seconds, which are those eggs which we can only sell for, um, for, for, for less money. And so automatically we've got economic benefits as well as benefits to bird welfare. Birds were, were basically healthier. And as a result of that study, it, it, the impact on the industry was, was massive. Um, and what we found is that our commercial partner immediately changed their sourcing policy um, and all of the eggs that supplied that fast food chain um, suddenly had to be planting 5% tree cover on the range uh, for, those, for those chickens. And following that, the industry moved. Uh, you know, when you get one big player changing their policy, you get a pull through through the whole industry. And we find now that 44% of all shell eggs sold in the UK 
raised in enriched uh, free-range systems, which means they've got, they've got trees on the range, which obviously is, is, again, great for the economics, for the farmer, great for bird welfare, and fantastic for the environment, because we all know that, that, that uh, trees represent a, a carbon sequestration, greater biodiversity, uh, less soil erosion, better drainage, etc. So we've got huge value in this project and we've got a three E's impact. So it's a really good case study for the sort of work that, that we're constantly uh, seeking to, to, to perform. So a little bit about sort of what we can all do um, in, terms of our, in terms of our own personal ethics, I suppose, and also how we can uh, buy better food and use our, our spending power for the better. Well, we know that we're all much more interest, interested these days in, in artisan produce, local food, plant-based food, and, and foods that pr promote health and well-being. There's this, there's this concept that I quite like about the conscientious omnivore, and I think there's a lot of those in this room, people that do eat meat, and I'm in, included in that, but, but like to select good quality products um, from sources that we are confident um, in which animals get a good deal, um, as well as the farmers get a good deal too. So conscientious omnivores are what we're looking for. And we know that two-thirds of the world's uh, consumers are looking for big changes in the way our food is produced. So we're at a really exciting point in time. And I think what everybody could take away as well from this is, is perhaps the, the message that we all need to upskill ourselves, all need to educate ourselves a little bit more on, on the food that's on our plate. Um, and, there's, it, and it's a complicated world out there. There's so many labels, so many words um, that, that can be quite baffling. But I'd really encourage you to take a bit of time to look, to explore, to question the standards of some of these brands and some of these labels. Um, and we can't go through them all today, sadly. But we've got, we've got labels like the Red Tractor, which is British, um, and it assures a certain level of farming standards. We've got Pasture for Life, which assures that those animals, ruminants, usually sheep and cattle, are grazed for life on forage. We've got the Soil Association, one of a few organic logos, um, which, which give us various assurances about animal welfare as well as environmental stewardship on farms. We've obviously got the Free Range Egg, and I think probably most of us here are, are well sold into to Free Range um, eggs these days. And then finally, RSPTA Assured, which probably is, is the leading brand, I'd say, in terms of animal welfare. Um, and so these are all brands to, to perhaps look out for and, and start exploring, doing a deep dive into what exactly they mean, so that your, your own personal ethics are reflected in, in your spending power. And that's about it from me. So yeah, if you can just take away the three E's uh, from today, that, that would be a job well done for me. <laughs> Sorry, it's not done yet. I've got a bit more. But, uh, <laughs> so I think, I think what, obviously what you've seen from Laura there is, you know, a sense of where FAI work, you know, on the food supply chain. It's this kind of, there's a number of touching points between producers to people that eat the stuff. Just iterating that from the people that produce it. We had a conversation about this. Depending on where you are on the food supply chain, you, talk, you call each other different names. So we, you know, very likely would be referred to as consumers. Uh, we had a conversation about are we citizens, you know, all this sort of thing. But I think what's really important is that wherever you are on that supply chain, you're a person and you're, and you're people, and that's something that we want to acknowledge. So from, from the people that produce to the people that provide access, to the people that create, to the people that enjoy and benefit from it. 
you know, so that that's what we what we're doing by articulating this is we're acknowledging that you can't just talk to one of those sets of people. You've got to talk through them all. And what you what you might find is that say somebody at the at the, the provision of access, which could be say a supermarket or or something like that, they might say, oh well, we do it because the customers want it. You know, and that's, that's, a, that's an easy thing to say. I think what we understand and what we know is that we have got great examples of people that want to change things all along that. You know, and that's, I think, really it's about recognising that, as again, as Laura said, this kind of notion of pull-through, that if you can have a massive impact, then you can, you're not just impacting your business, but you're impacting lots of businesses. So these are things that, I think, in terms of our roles and how we work together, we're constantly thinking about this. Um, which then brings us to mess, which obviously everybody's got a copy of this on your on your uh, on your tables. Um, so mess kind of came about. We've, as, a, as a design studio, we've we've always worked with this kind of notion of free press. We've always worked with this idea that you know how do you make something um, more valuable to people that don't know about it? Well, you've got to show it them, and you've got to do it in good faith, and you've got to give it. You've got to meet them on their terms. So putting photography, um, arts photography. Um, publications, in pubs, in cafes, in places where they're going to be difficult to avoid, they're going to be eye-catching, they're going to be something that is going to get in their way. And we, we kind of, we, we went, we did a, a, an archive Sheffield, which was just before, I don't know, just before issue one of Mess came out, and we were, we, as a studio, what we do is we distribute, we, we kind of get, here's 200 to you, here's 200 to you, you go down XR Road, you go down that road, and we'll just, we'll just put them in places. And on that, that particular weekend, my turn was Peddlers. So I came, to, I came to Peddlers, I love it here, you know, the food, the drink, the atmosphere, all that sort of stuff's great. And um, I brought uh, Pam and uh, my two kids, and we were sat outside eating. I'd got this big stack of um, Archive Sheffields. And I said to the two kids, I said, every time somebody gets up off a table, take one of these magazines and put it in their place. And so we just we just did it, and I know this was kind of we didn't ask permission, which is a bit naughty, but we just kind of we just tried it out. It was one of those things, and we were outside and we were watching as people were walking out with this quite brightly coloured um, document under their arms, and we were looking at them and we we're thinking, actually, this is you know obviously what's going on in in peddlers is is the all these things that are for the senses, and there's the, the, there are people here that actually might be interested in other things that we have to say. So that was kind of the inspiration. And the Monday morning, I was straight into work and I said, uh, I said to Alex, I said, Alex, can you ring Heather, please, and find out if they'd be interested in working together? And thankfully, you know, that, that was a fairly quick conversation and we, we ended up kind of collaborating on this project. Um, has everybody been to Peddlers? Yeah, yeah. If not, you've got, you've got to come down. So um, why did we do it? You know, I suppose for us it's a bit of an experiment. It's, uh, it's something that we want to see if it's, it's a way of helping talk to some of those people on that, on that supply chain. So invite and create dialogue, invite and create collaboration, create community, engage audiences that are passionate about what they understand, brew, create, prepare, eat, drink and experience, join things up and interrupt. You know, I think that's the main thing is that what we want to do is we want to have these kind of... this work alongside an environment that's so vibrant with such a massive footfall where people are happy, where people are engaged and give them something that maybe they might take home, they might not read it straight away, but they might take home, they might look at it and just get something different from it. 
Um, it's the beginning, you know, certainly for us, Messi, it's on issue two, so it's kind of something that is, we've got huge ambitions for this. Um, point, you know, so just so everybody's kind of really kind of, it's a collaboration, you know, it can't, this kind of project can be nothing more than that. You know, we couldn't have done this without looking at Peddler and thinking, you know, what they're doing is bringing people together. Um, we've got a great production partner in SAP, and that they've, you know, they've without, you know, they've got on board and supported us so much in terms of the print and uh, the finishing on this. Believe me, it is not easy to fasten a diagonal cover onto a magazine. It is not. This is hand finishing. So it's sort of this is, but this is again comes back to why are we doing it? Because we want it to be, we want it to be different. We don't want it to sit next to lots of square things. We want it to sit and there and be completely something that's odd, that makes you feel curious. And also we, we're getting uh, kindly supported um, on stock by GF Smith Papers, who uh, this, is, this kind of installation up here has been done by the stu um, students and tutors at Hallam University. So, if, every, if nobody saw issue one, it's, uh, sadly it's gone, but they, you can, they're, they're, on, they're online. Um, we've decided that as a as a kind of process that we, we're pretty much going to do it as um, bi-monthly. Um, we, we've got a page count. I think we started off with maybe six, uh, 12 page count. We've got up to 16. We, don't, you know, we, we need to make this sustain itself at the moment. This is it's a mixture of sweat and uh, investment equity, so it's, kind of, it's one of those things. Um, we, as you see by the, the thing in front of you, we had a real kind of ambition to make it something that wasn't the usual... Um, kind of printed document material around this subject matter um, and so issue one, issue two we've mixed in so we, we, our strategy if you like is that we don't just want this to be about the heavy stuff, we want it to be about the stuff that people like as well, we want it to be about the stuff to do with music, to do with art to do with the people that are actually presenting the food to you, presenting the drinks to you and it's about Weaving in some of the narratives that Laura mentioned alongside, you know, these passionate people. So Florence Blanchard is obviously in this um, in this issue, alongside Laura's piece. You know, I love the fact that we can put these things together um, alongside Matt and Jolie. So Matt's, Matt's at the back from Sheffield University, uh, Sheffield University. Um, this is a great uh, pairing. So we're presenting seasonal produce in a slightly different uh, different way here. We've got Joe. Uh, took uh, rhubarb and wrote an article about it and then Matt kind of came up uh, all over the top of that with his uh, custard fight uh, essays which is you know it's just for us is exactly the right kind of narrative and the right kind of approach for how we see this kind of going um, and then obviously it's not forgetting peddlers itself and the traders and what's been great about that is again we ask a question about you know do people care about where the food comes from. You know, we, we want the answer to be yes. We want people to come up to these stalls and say, where's that beef being sourced from? It's just not like that. You know, it's just, and it's understandable because, you know, people aren't necessarily coming here to think, um, think in that way. But what was really clear from talking to the traders is they care. You know, it's not, it doesn't really matter to them. Some of them, it doesn't matter to them whether the, the, the customers care. They, they care about their integrity in serving the product in the first place. And I think that's, that's, that's you know, it's a great example of showing how, again, along that food supply chain. And again, this, this is a document and a magazine for them as just as it's much for people that eat the food as well. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that's where uh, uh, Mess is launched every bi-monthly at, uh, at, at the Peddlers event. 
following that it then goes into the city into the cafes into the bars into the galleries and stuff like that and then, until it's gone uh, I think last on the first issue it went within maybe one and a half weeks or something like that so very good response again very good feedback from the city very good feedback from the people that are um, that are kind of holding that in their in their in their spaces, and there's definitely you know there's definitely an ambition to kind of engage more with that. So I'm gonna this is a bit of a close in this really, because um, I think this is the sort of human condition that we find ourselves with, and it's one I certainly kind of struggle with, is that life is kind of quite difficult, and life can be difficult because you've had a hard day at work or because when you turn the news on it's absolutely terrifying. And I think when you start to add some of this sub subject matter on top of that, it gets a little bit harder. And, you know, how, how do we make engagement with these issues compelling? You know, I think that's, that's a, that for me is the biggest question. That is the question that Laura has to answer in terms of when she talks to her stakeholders. And I have to answer when I talk to you. You know, it's how do I make you stop what you're doing and engage differently. Not in a way that you feel punished by it, but in a way that you feel interested by it. And the two things that I think are really important in this are desire and comfort, because for me they're kind of polar opposites, one's driven by energy, the other one's potentially driven by the fact that, you know, you just want to feel, you just want to feel like everything's alright again, and that you've got in, in that, so I fancy a pizza, I fancy a burger, I should have salad for tea, or I could have lasagna for tea, you know, these, these are the questions that you ask yourself on a daily basis. And kind of getting interrupting that and stopping that from happening isn't easy because I think it comes down to not just you, it comes down to what people provide you. So, for example, if the food that you could have that represented your desires or your comforts was produced in the manner that we've just been discussing, then you wouldn't have to worry too much about the decision you were making. And so these are the things that, what we, that we're doing with the printed media, that we're doing with our language, that we're doing with our communications that we're considering all the time. Now, back to Matt, um, Matt and Joe's essay about rhubarb and custard. This, this for me is a great analogy. At the last, at the last Peddlers, we had, um, we had two things. We had sweets and we had the, obviously we had the mesh magazine. And Alex stood at the door with this box of sweets, about, probably about 100 bags. And we, we also stood there with these magazines as well. And people were coming in, and it said free sweets, free magazine. People were coming in, picking the sweets up, ignoring the magazine. They didn't even ask us what was in the bag. They didn't say, is this, can I eat this? Can I, you know, what flavour is it? There was one person out of 100 that says, excuse me, have these been made in a nut-free environment? That was, the, that was the only one. And everybody else was like, you know, was just, it was just, it was just complete desire. It was just complete sweets. Oh, rhubarb and custard, fantastic. And we did, we did a tweet that day, it was something like, um, sugar wins over common sense, the media called it wrong yet again. And it was this, it's this whole thing of, for me, it's about how do we get more into that space? How do we get more into the space of desire when it comes to making money? How do we get more into the space of desire when it, makes, when it comes to making a good decision around your food? Or just and how you produce your food? What we've got to do is we've got to tell good stories, we've got to encourage people that are doing well, and we've just got to find our own little ways of managing this stuff. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. There we go.
A huge thank you to Patrick and Laura for their talk on design, science and sustainable food. And thank you for listening. You can find out more about Dust at du.st and FAI Farms at, and you're not going to believe this, faifarms.com. You can subscribe to the Creative Morning Sheffield podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or whichever app floats your particular boat. And you can visit creativemornings.com slash cities slash SHD or follow us on Twitter at CM underscore Sheffield. <laughs>